Well, tonight, uh, here as we begin, um, wanted to uh, start by reviewing the, uh, the five summary statements that uh, the Protestants held to uh, during the Reformation. Uh, obviously, here tonight, we're here to remember this event about 500 years ago. Um, and so the, the five statements that united the Protestant church, we often call the five solas or something like that, the five alones. So um, uh, let's, first of all, uh, write these down. What are those five? Jesse. Right. We start with scripture alone, and this is really where we begin. Um, <clears throat> our authority is found ultimately in the scriptures, not in the words of men, not in um, popes or anything else like that, but ultimately uh, our authority is found in the scriptures. All right, what's another one? Josh, did I see your hand? Okay. <clears throat> we have... I'll put that one down here. Faith alone. And what's another one? Christ alone. Okay, Christ alone. And what were you saying there, Joe? Grace alone. All right. And what's the last? Uh, well, let me say here briefly. <clears throat> these three go together. And, excuse me, the, the idea here is that... Um, it is all of God's grace to us. He does not see anything in us that is a reason why he would save us. <clears throat> it has nothing to do with how good looking we are or how smart we are or what family we're from or how much money we have or any of these things that we, we may have or, or may do. It is all because of God's grace, because we're sinners. And then it's Christ alone. Um, it's not... The work of angels or Mary or me or anyone else. It's the work of Christ only that uh, we can be saved. And then faith alone, uh, we're not adding anything to this, not my faithfulness in any way, not any act that I have done, uh, but it is simply I am putting my faith in Christ. All right, now what's the last one, uh, Matthew? Almost. Jesse? Glory to God alone. Okay. Yeah. Or to God alone be the glory. Something like that. Okay. And the idea here really encapsulates everything. Again, it's scripture alone. God's word, not man's word. It is God's grace to us, not what we do. It's Christ's work, not our work. It's faith in him and so forth. So all this gives glory to God uh, in the end. And, and these uh, statements, in many ways, united the uh, Protestant church in contrast to the Catholic church and the things that they were teaching. Now, in reform circles, uh, we also had a, a group of five things that helped to unite us. And this actually was a reaction to the five points of Arminianism. That came first, Synod of Dort and so forth, and they had their five points. And so the five points of Calvinism are a response to that. And what's the acronym that we use for this? TULIP. TULIP. So <clears throat> what then 
does T stand for? Nope. Total yes, total depravity. All right, this is the idea that we're dead in our sins, and uh, we are unable to respond to God. It has the idea of the fact that sin has affected every part of who we are. Mind, will, emotion, body, soul, everything. Now, we're not absolutely depraved. That's Satan. But we are totally depraved. All of who we are is affected by sin. Um, Now, this is in contrast to Arminianism that would say our will has not been affected by sin, at least not to the point that we're dead. We're only sick, they would say. All right, so then uh, what does you stand for? Do you know? Um, No, you're on the right track with your ideas, but... What is you? <clears throat> Go ahead, Jesse. Okay. Unconditional election. Now, this is the idea that since we're totally depraved and we are dead in our sins and we would never choose Christ left to ourselves, then God has decided to save some. Not everyone, but to save some. And it's based, again, on grace alone. It's unconditional. It's not based on anything in us, but purely by God's good pleasure. So you think of Ephesians 1, you think of uh, Romans 9, passages like this. All right. So what's L? Okay. Limited atonement. And Philip, do you know the other term that we use for this? Didn't sound so nice. You know, tulip doesn't work quite as well as tulip. But definite atonement is another term that you'll hear people use for this one. And this is the idea that Christ came and uh, atoned for the sins of those God had elected. If we were to say that Christ died for the, for the sins of the whole world, then everyone would be saved. Or we had to add something because Christ's work wasn't enough. And both are problematic. Right? And so limited atonement or definite atonement is that Christ died for the sins of that definite group of people. Those whom God has chosen. So, again, Romans 9, you'll see this idea, see the 1 Peter 2, and and so forth. All right, now, I. Yes. Something like that is done during the No? Man. All right, irresistible grace. Okay, irresistible grace. And this is the idea that since we are dead in our sins and we cannot do anything to respond to Christ, once he makes us alive, spiritually speaking, then we will respond. And it's irresistible when he does that. And the original 
Arminius position. He said that we were dead in our sins. God makes us alive, and then it's up to us to decide whether or not we want Christ. And if we say no, we go back to being dead again. Okay, that's what Arminius himself taught. That's not Arminianism. But uh, so, again, because we're talking about things from back then, the reformers, or the Calvinists, would say, well, wait a second. If God makes us alive, then we're going to be saved. It's that simple. We can't resist that. And so, hence, irresistible grace. All right, now what about P? Do you know yet? Or are you guessing it yet? Perfection. <laughs> you're, well, you're, you're on the right track. You're on the right track. Who knows the term here? Beth? Perseverance of the saints. And um, anybody know the other term we use here? Preservation. Well, preservation of God. Okay. Um, all right, so you'll hear both of these. Um, those whom God has elected, okay, Romans 8, those he foreknew, he predestined, those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. Okay, so if you are one of those God has foreknown, you're, the end is glorification. He will preserve us to the end. And so because of that, we will persevere in our faith. We will overcome. And so this is the, uh, uh, the basic idea here. So you think of 1 Peter 1 as well uh, to go with this. All right. Now, <clears throat> with all this in mind, uh, I wanted to give this kind of as a background to what I wanted to emphasize here tonight. And uh, so first of all, if you look in your Bible... And I think I took yours, Matthew. Uh, if you turn to um, Romans chapter 3. <clears throat> yeah, the most uh, well-known reformer here for Reformation Day, of course, is Martin Luther. And Martin Luther is known for many things. Uh, his love of hymns, and we just sang a hymn written by him. The tune is... Is slightly different from the original tune, but uh, this uh, uh, hymn 92 was written by Luther. Uh, he was known, of course, uh, for the 95 theses on the church door in, in Wittenberg, and this was their way of saying, I have 95 complaints against the Catholic Church. I want to talk about it, more or less. Um, he is well known for a number of things, especially his translation of the Greek and Hebrew into German for the German Bible. But he's also well known for his statement that uh, the church stands or falls over the doctrine of justification. Okay? And that's what I want to emphasize here for the rest of our time uh, tonight. Now, here in Romans 3, I want to begin reading in verse 21 down to the end of the chapter. And so Romans 3, verse 21, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus 
whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now let me pause here in a moment. Whenever you see the term just or justify or righteous, they all go together. So many times here in these verses you see those, those words. So then verse 27, where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So another word you can throw in there in this discussion is law. (laughs) To be righteous is to be according to the law. um, And righteousness and justice and all that go together. All right, now, let's turn in our hymnals to the back. I believe it's 855 here. Yes, page 855. All right, now this is the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it's the... um, the document that we hold to as being the best summary understanding of the scriptures. And so in chapter 11, we see here this topic of justification. Now let me say here, first of all, this is a Bible word. We just read it, right? This is not a word that some theologian made up. Uh, This comes directly from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so certainly we need to to understand it. Now, uh, the second thing I wanted to say is whenever you're reading through the confession, everything builds on the previous in one way or another, especially these opening chapters. So when we start here in chapter 11, uh, we're going to go backwards first before we go forward here. Um, <clears throat> all right, so let's just read through this chapter and I'll make a few comments as we go along. Those whom God effectually calleth. All right, now let's just stop right there. The previous chapter, the effectual call, okay? Chapter 9, free will. Back to chapter 6, the fall of man, of sin, and the punishment thereof. All right, now let me just briefly summarize uh, these. If you look especially in uh, chapter 6, paragraph 2, by this sin, they, that's Adam and Eve, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. Right here, right? Total depravity. So here's that summary term now spelled out in a sentence. So if we're dead in our sins, Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, and every part of us has been affected by sin, okay, Well, we can't do anything to save ourselves, right? We need God to do something. So chapter 7, God enters into covenant. Chapter 8, he sends Christ 
to keep that covenant for us. Okay. See how it fits together. Also, um, if you look at, par- at uh, chapter 9, here now, the next page of free will. All right, paragraph 3. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. So we use the term total depravity, but we also use the term total inability. We are unable to choose Christ in and of ourselves. So in the ultimate sense, we have no free will. Our will is in bondage. We're dead. We are slaves of sin. So how does that change? Well, look now at chapter 10, paragraph 2. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man who is altogether passive therein, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. This is Ephesians 2 verse 4, basically, that we are dead in our sins, but God makes us alive. That's the effectual call where the spirit calls us and takes us from our spiritual deadness and makes us alive spiritually so that we now can respond to Christ. We can't until God does that. But once he does, then we can respond. All right, now that's our background. Now let's come back to chapter 11 and that first line. Those whom God effectually calls. Okay, takes them from their dead spiritual condition, makes them alive. He also freely justifieth. Remember that from Romans 3, right? Freely justifieth. Now what does all that mean? Well, first, not by infusing righteousness into them. That's the Catholic view. The Catholic view is that you take all these sacraments, and the more sacraments you take, the more righteousness you have, as it were, poured into you. And so the more you do, the more righteous you become. And they're like, no, 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 we're not justified by anything that's infused or poured into us. That's not how we understand this. But, note the next part here, by pardoning their sins. This is the first, there's more to it. But first, by pardoning their sins. So when we talk about justification, really the first idea is God forgives our sins. Okay, so if we say I'm justified, we are saying God's forgiven me of the sins that I have committed. Now the second part of that then is, and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. In other words, when God looks at us, he no longer sees a sinner, because our sins are forgiven, he no longer sees an imperfect, sinful person, but he sees someone now who is righteous. He looks at us and says, okay, I'm going to treat this person as righteous, no longer as unrighteous. Okay. Now, how can he do that? 
Well, note the next part. Not for anything wrought in them or done by them. Okay, so there's nothing in us that get, causes God to say, I'm going to treat that person as righteous now. Okay? It's not my wonderful beard or your wonderful hair or you know your ripped jeans you're wearing tonight. You know, it's none of these kind of things, right? None of this matters. It's not anything that we have done. Okay, that God would do this. Then note the next part, but for Christ's sake alone. So, right? See all these alones that keep coming up in these words? Okay. It's for Christ alone that God looks at me and says, innocent, perfect, righteous. Not because I am, but because Christ is. So note the next part. Um, Not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness. Okay, so again, notice all these alones are coming up here again. Okay. <clears throat> Simply, God does not take Jesus' faith and say, well, that's now my faith. Okay, that's, that's what the first part is saying. We're not imputing faith. Jesus doesn't believe for us. Okay. That's not the point. Also, um, nor any other evangelical obedience to them. Okay, so they're, they're, this is getting at the Arminian position here, okay? The Arminian position would say, well, yes, we, we, uh, we're sinners and we are breaking God's law and so forth. So God changed it when Christ came. And instead of keeping all these laws in the Old Testament, he says, all you have to do is do one thing. And if you do that one thing, that one obedience, then you can be saved. And what is that one thing? Believing on Jesus. But if I'm dead in my sins, how can I do that? I can't. So the Armenian view says that we're sick in our sin. It basically ignores Ephesians 2. But we're dead in our sins, so we cannot do even one evangelical obedient thing. And so that's what they're driving at here in that line. But notice the contrast. But by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them. This first paragraph is so loaded. (laughs) All right. First of all, by imputing obedience. What this has in mind here is that Jesus is obedient for us. So if we go back to what I said before, accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. How does he do that? By imputing the obedience of Christ to our account. He says, Scott is innocent. Scott is perfect. He is without any blame, any sin, not because of me. But because Jesus was perfect, kept every one of the laws of God in every way. And so it's Christ doing it for me. It's not me doing one good thing. It's not any of those other things. It's what Christ has done in perfectly keeping the law. 
And then it says the satisfaction of Christ. Now, this means, if you will, the other point. Christ came to live a perfect life for us, but he also came to die on the cross to satisfy God's justice. There's that word again. Justification, justice, law, righteousness, all this goes together. And so Jesus satisfied God's justice. The point here is, that God doesn't say, oh, you know, I, I kind of like this Scott guy, you know, just overlook his sin and let him into heaven. That's not what happened. God does not say, like a permissive parent, oh, it's okay that you, you know, you disobeyed. We just won't worry about it, you know, and, and so forth. That, that's not what God does. God punishes sin. He punishes my sin. But he did it in Christ. Christ took that punishment instead of me, instead of his people. And so this completely satisfies God's justice. Okay. And so God, Romans 3, is just and the justifier. Okay. Verse 25 and verse 26 there. And so God... Again, is not overlooking sin. He is punishing sin, but he's doing it in Christ. So you have the perfection that God demands fulfilled in Christ. You have the punishment that God requires fulfilled in Christ. And so that's how my account can be seen as without guilt, without sin. And my sins can be forgiven and I can be treated as perfect in the sight of God. And so can you. And so then note the next part. They receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. All right, so is it enough for Jesus to come and be perfect and die and go back to heaven? Is that all we need? Well, no, we need to believe in Jesus. We need to rest in him. Looking to who he is, so we'll have to go back to chapter 8 and see a whole lot more about Jesus, right? And we've been doing that in Psalm 110 here in the mornings. Um, But we rest in him. We look to him as our God. We look to him as our Savior. We look to him and what he has done and rest in him to be perfect for me and to take the punishment I deserve. And so that's our faith. And this faith is a gift of God. So that's Ephesians 2, right? Verses 8 and 9. This is a faith that has been given to us. Notice, it's not Jesus believing for me. It's my faith, but ultimately it's from God because I wouldn't believe if he didn't change my heart first. All right, let's look now at the second paragraph. Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. All right, we're not talking about a guitar or a trumpet here or something, right? We're talking about an instrument meaning the means. The means by which we are justified is faith. Okay, now... That the other, I'll just write these down. The two key words that we use here are means and grounds. Okay? 
ground, right? It's something you stand on, right? That's our foundation. The foundation of our justification is everything I've just said about what Jesus did. He was perfect for us, and he took our punishment. That's the ground of our justification. That's what we stand on. That's what we rest upon. But the means is faith. Faith alone. Now, the reason why they're emphasizing this is, we just read it in Romans 3, so they're talking about it. But they're also um, saying, well, wait a second. Um, There are some people that would say that there are things other than our faith are the means of our justification. Such as um, speaking in tongues. Such as being immersed when you're baptized. Such as taking a trip to the Holy Land. Or whatever it is. Okay? It's faith plus something else. Maybe you could change the word instead of faith. It would be our faithfulness in some way. And so this, this uh, statement here is speaking against the Arminian view. It's speaking against the Catholic view. It's speaking against the federal vision view of our current day. It's speaking against uh, several of these things. The other thing I'd mentioned here briefly is this. When we read there in Romans, Paul used this language very specifically. Paul never says that we are justified because of faith. He always says we are justified through faith, by means of faith. And that is, we're looking to Christ who is the ground of our justification. All right, now the rest of the paragraph says this. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. You might say the first part of the paragraph is Paul, the second part is James. But that's an oversimplification. Um, But the idea here simply is we are justified in Christ by believing in him. But if you're truly justified, then you're going to live a godly life. That's simply the point. If you say that you're justified, but you're living as if you're not a Christian, then you haven't been justified. (laughs) It's that simple. And so we are justified through faith alone, but that faith is never alone. We then live faithfully. So the second paragraph is justification and then sanctification. We keep them separate. Catholic Church puts them together. The Arminian Church puts them together in certain ways. We keep them distinct because Paul does. All right, third paragraph. Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are thus justified. It did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to his Father's justice in their behalf. This goes back to what I was saying before. God does not say, oh, you know, don't worry about it. I'll just let you into heaven. No big deal. God will not do that. God has not done that. He, Jesus, made a proper, real, and full satisfaction to his Father's justice in their behalf. Jesus took that wrath on the cross. That's why Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is why Jesus um, 
was afraid of the cross. He didn't want to go there because he knew that he would be facing God's judgment. Okay, so, again, God's not overlooking sin. He is punishing it in Christ. And in the next part, yet inasmuch as he was given by the Father for them, and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead, and both, that is, obedience and satisfaction, both of those freely, not for anything in them. Their justification is only of free grace. So again, this is, has nothing to do with us. Notice how the Father gave the Son. It's all of God's grace. To God alone be the glory here. And then the next part here, that both the exact justice and the rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. And so God's justice is upheld. God's grace is clearly seen. Do you see why Luther said the church stands and falls on this doctrine? That may be an overstatement, but there's a lot of truth to it. They're so, so vital here. All right, paragraph four. God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect, and Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ unto them. All right, now, if you go back to chapter 3, it talks about God's decree. And this is the idea that simply God has planned everything. Okay? And so from eternity past, we say, before God made anything, he planned that we would be justified through the work of Christ. But that justification didn't actually happen yet. Well, Christ came, right, about 2,000 years ago, right time, God planned for it and so forth. He came and he did the work of perfection and he did the work of taking our punishment. But we're still not justified yet. We become justified when God changes my heart and I respond in repentance and faith. That's when we're actually justified. So not when God planned it, not even when Jesus did his work and died and rose again, but I'm justified now, today, when I come to faith in Jesus. So in my case, I believe God justified me when I was five years old. Okay, that's when it actually took place. Okay? Some of you may remember the day, some of you may not. That's fine. But this is when we're justified. Now, the, the next, there are four parts here. There's when God planned it. There's when Jesus did it. There's when I actually believe by God's grace. And then there's the very end when Jesus comes back and we are fully vindicated. Uh, but justification itself takes place here in my life when God saves me. That's what paragraph four is getting at. So paragraph five. God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified, and although they can never fall from the state of justification, they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure, and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. All right, this is getting at the question of what happens when I sin after I become a believer? And, and some people really struggle with this question. Right? Well, the answer to this question is, 
all my sins, including the sins I've committed after I was saved, those too are, are forgiven through Christ. All my sins, sins I committed before I came to faith and even the ones after, they're all forgiven. And my sin, if I have truly been chosen by God and I am truly justified, my sin will never change that. Right? Preservation of God, perseverance of the saints. Nothing will change that, right? Romans 8. If God has foreknown and predestined and called and justified, you're going to be glorified. Okay, so that's how that paragraph begins. But like any relationship that we have, there can be uh, a strain on that relationship. Okay? You know, think of a married couple, hey, or think of some good friends or something like that. And, and something happens. Somebody uh, you know, maybe says something mean or does something mean or whatever. That affects that relationship, right? You're still married. But that relationship now has this tension, you might say. And it's going to remain that way until somebody repents and things are fixed up, you might say. Well, the same is true here with our relationship with God. We're still married to God, and nothing's going to change that. But my relationship with Him can be affected by my sin. And... We need to repent of our sins. We need to return to him and renew our repentance and faith, as it says at the end. Um, and so that's what uh, that paragraph is, is driving at. So we, um, sin doesn't separate us from the Lord, but our sin can interfere in our relationship with him. All right, so then paragraph six. The justification of believers under the Old Testament was, in all these respects, one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. Very simply, we're all saved the same way. Isn't that how Paul ended Romans 3? Right? Whether Jew or Gentile, we're all saved the same way. It's the law of faith. The law of faith in Christ. The Jew looked forward to Christ coming. We look back to Christ coming. We're all saved the same way. Through the obedience of Christ, through the satisfaction of Christ in our place. And so we do not, we do not say, well, the believers in the Old Testament, they were saved by offering sacrifices and keeping the feasts and so forth. But, but now in the New Testament, we're saved by trusting in Jesus. Okay. Paul does not say that, and so the confession does not say that. We are all saved the same way, by looking to Christ alone for our justification. So that's what the sixth paragraph is, is getting at. All right. Well, as I say numerous times, we can say a lot more here. <laughs> um, but here's a summary of this uh, vital doctrine. I would disagree with Luther. I'm not sure the church stands or falls on the doctrine of justification, but it's very important. It's very, very significant. And I, I thought it would be helpful for us to, to, to review these ideas a little bit here tonight. Um, we need to understand it, but of course, most of all, we need to put our faith in Jesus. For he alone 
is how any of us can be right with God again. And so hopefully all of us here have, but if you haven't yet, this is our only hope, the work of Christ alone in our place. All right. Well, let's uh, conclude our time of prayer. And then um, Fred just came in, so I take it that means the, the ride is here? All right. Good. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for, um, for your word. And, and as we have uh, read from Romans 3 and now hear the, the confession in its summary of your word, uh, we thank you especially for, for being righteous, for being uh, just, for, um, for your law. We thank you for these things. We thank you too, Lord, that even though we have broken your law and we deserve your righteous punishment, we are thankful that you then sent Christ to keep the law for us to be perfect in our place, and then to take the punishment we deserve for breaking your law. Lord, we are so thankful for your grace to us in Christ, and that your scripture teaches us these things. We thank you, Lord, for, uh, for this. We thank you, too, that by the work of your Spirit, um, you not only have Uh, sent forth your son but you have sent forth your spirit to work in our hearts to take our dead stony hearts to make them a heart of flesh to make them alive again that we might repent of our sins and find forgiveness and that we might trust in Jesus and look to him alone that we might be restored to you we thank you for this lord We thank you for the effectual call. We thank you for this work of justification through Christ and his work in our place and your pronouncement that we are perfect in your sight and nothing's going to change that because Christ does not change and your promises do not change. This is truly, truly an amazing thing, Lord. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to better understand these things. We pray also that if anyone here does not trust in you, we pray, Lord, that even now you would work in their hearts, that you would uh, soften it, and uh, that you would uh, enable them then to respond in faith and repentance and look to Christ as our only hope to be spared the judgment that we deserve. And so we pray for your mercies here in this way. We pray for the rest of our evening. Pray for safety, pray for a good time and good fellowship, and that you would be honored in it all. Uh, We thank you for all these things then, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.